You're listening to a podcast from JNIS. So this morning I've got Quill Turk. Quill had an article published in the July issue of JNIS entitled CT Perfusion Guided Patient Selection for Endovascular Treatment of Acute Ischemic Stroke is Safe and Effective. This was one of the Editor's Choice articles. Thank you, Quill, for agreeing to talk with me this morning. Can you tell me just a little bit about the design of your study? Yeah, thanks, Rob. I appreciate you inviting me to, to talk uh, about this. I think the background of why we did this study will, will kind of explain it because it is a retrospective review of our uh, experience with CT-guided uh, perfusion for patient selection for acute stroke uh, treatment. When I moved to South Carolina at the Medical University of South Carolina about five years ago, we actually started a whole new stroke team at that time. So they brought in okay. about 16 different physicians in various specialties at that time. So we all kind of came together brand new and started a stroke program from scratch. Mm-hmm. Uh, and my background being at the University of Wisconsin before, we were very heavy imaging-based uh, in patient selection for stroke. So we brought that philosophy uh, here as well. And we utilized that essentially from day one, starting in late 2007, and have continued it since. And a couple of years ago, we kind of said, well, gosh, we've been doing this, and we're getting up in the middle of the night, and we're doing a lot of cases, and and is it really making a difference? You know, we're treating all these cases. Should we be doing it? And are we using the right methods for selection? So we went back and looked at all of the cases that we've done um, since we started, and we looked at all of the patients and looked at what their outcomes were and looked at the the best time that we had as far as when their symptom onset was. And, and these are all patients that we've used perfusion imaging to select. And then we looked at outcomes. And what we basically found was that our average uh, time to treat these patients was somewhere around 10 hours, but the median was six hours. So okay. uh, that just tells us that we had a lot of patients that were far outside of any strict time criteria. Um, when we looked at our patient outcomes, we found that our outcomes, we still were somewhere in that uh, high 30% to 40% range as far as good clinical outcomes, meaning modified ranking zero to two. Mm-hmm. And that fits right up there with all of the big trials that have been done, uh, whether it be you know nines that did the IVTPA, whether it was PROACT, um, and whether it was any of the big thrombectomy trials, even the newest SWIFT trial. So we're right there at that same level and that's not using any strict time criteria. So that that really made us feel well. The other thing was is when we looked at complications, and namely symptomatic uh, intracranial hemorrhages, again, our numbers uh, were were very low, um, somewhere around uh, 8 to 10%. So, again, that tells us that we're being very safe. And then when we looked at mortality rates, our mortality rate was in the mid-20% range, I think about 25 or 26%. And again, that's right in keeping with all of the trials. What that told me was that we're able to treat these patients and maintain the same level of good clinical outcomes tempered with low uh, complication and mortality rates that rival all of the trials, but yet removing any time uh, constricted parameters and just using uh, imaging basis alone. What I think is even more important is that when we draw a line down the middle and we take half the patients and bump them into the less than six-hour group, and then the group more than six hours, the outcomes are basically the same. So there's no significant difference in outcome in patients that are treated, you know, 12, 24, 48 hours out than those that are treated in two, four, six hours. So that, that I think, was really crucial as well. Right, right. 
So when you started the program, you guys never really had a, you never really used time? Because I can imagine locally here, you know, if we took patients that arrived after six hours or after eight hours, we would be screening a, a ton of patients. And I'm just wondering, was there any clinical parameters that you guys use for sort of the late patients, patients presenting after six hours? Obviously, it took a little bit of uh, a little bit of work back and forth and a little bit of time, but we basically developed a protocol-driven approach to stroke. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, these patients had to have a an NIH stroke scale score of greater than eight. Um, we started okay. out at 10, and then we lowered it to eight over time. And if those patients came in with that approach, then they would automatically get a CT, CTA, CT perfusion because those are the patients okay. that are most likely to have a large vessel occlusion of some sort. Right, right. Huh. Okay, that's interesting. So for the patients that present early, um, do you feel that there may be a delay in time of imaging those patients? We have a same protocol-driven method no matter if you come in and you have your stroke in the emergency room waiting room mm-hmm. or if you have it four hours away and we helicopter you in. Everybody gets the same standardized approach. And I think by having okay. a standardized protocol-driven approach, it takes out any of the delays that are typically occurred in trying to do things very individually. Um, right. you know, so in other words, as soon as that patient comes in, he's identified as having a stroke scale of at least eight, he's automatically gone to, to the scanner. And oftentimes, by the time the stroke neurologist or the stroke neurology resident gets to see the patient, they're already in the scanner. So they'll try to, okay. in between the scans, do their assessment. When you do the same approach for every patient, it just becomes a very mm-hmm. customary and very streamlined. Oh, well, that makes sense. So do you have a sense, um, early compared to late, sort of ballpark percentage of patients screen that go on to endovascular therapy? I, w- I would imagine it's more in the early group, but I, I don't know. Um, is, is that your experience? It's hard to give an exact number, and we probably should be tracking all the patients that come in, but that's kind of hard because, you know, getting multiple people to do multiple patient trackings is always challenging. The best guess, I think we treat about 10% of the patients um, that come through. And and I don't think there's really a significant difference in early versus late. Uh, okay. Huh. That's interesting. W- one of the controversies uh, these days, I guess, from an imaging selection point of view is using CT perfusion versus MR type selection. Do you have an opinion about that? I think there's good data to support both methodologies. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think, you know, people should basically do whatever they do best. I know when I was in Madison, we could get MR done very quickly, very well, and and get an answer with that. Um, Here in Charleston, if I wanted to get an MR on 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 acute strokes as a screening, it, it's just not feasible or practical. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I think every hospital system and every situation is a little bit different. Um, you know, I, I certainly have become a fan of CT perfusion over the over the last, uh, you know, five or six years as we do it a lot more clinically. And I think it's, it's and I think it does a very good job, and I think it's as good as, as MR personally. Um, and, mm-hmm. But I think CT perfusion is more practical because it's, you have every every hospital has a CT scanner, most of them in the emergency rooms. Now, if you're in a hospital that's very specialized and very MR-driven, I think they can do the scans as quick as as many places can with CT, but those type of hospital systems are very few and far between. Mm -hmm. 
for patient selection, you know, whether you use MR or CT, it seems that what thresholds you choose for patient selection are key. And, and I think a little bit of a moving target. Can you talk about what thresholds you, you choose to decide, you know, to take a patient to endovascular therapy? That's always the challenge is uh, choosing it. And there's still, I think, an art to uh, to practicing this to some degree. Um, we do tend to follow the hard rules that have been shown to us in the past. In other words, if there's already a very large area of infarction, we tend to um, be a little more conservative. We always make sure that there is um, a significant penumbra available. We tend to use about 50%. That's going to be a point at which we're going to start to say, well, maybe we shouldn't do this. Um, however, we do also take into account the location of the area that's at risk. In other words, if there's a significant area of eloquence um, you know, if it's you know if it's Broca's area or Wernicke's area that's at risk, or the motor or, or motor, you know, those are things that we can potentially have a big impact on. So you know, we try to look at all aspects, but uh, the ones we obviously stay away from are people with bleeds or uh, already pre-existing or significant pre-existing infarctions. And from the standpoint of the posterior circulation, how do you guys use the CTP information to select those patients? You know, CTs is sometimes challenging in the posterior fossa. Mm-hmm. And we'll use the uh, blood volume parameters to help us, you know, feel better about what areas we think are infarcted and the extent of the infarction. And, you know, if somebody has already gone on to have a complete pontine infarct, we, you know, we, we may feel less uh, compelled to, to be super aggressive than somebody who has, you know, some small patchy areas of ischemia. But but it's definitely more challenging doing perfusion in the posterior circulation than in the right. circulation for sure. You know, and it seems image patient selection is becoming more widespread, which I think is good. Um, but it seems that despite that, better results have yet to be translated into, you know, larger trials. Do you have any thoughts about that or how we can improve that, basically? Yeah, I think, you know, I, th- I think there's kind of two challenges. Um, you know, one one is I think there's heterogeneity and, and clot composition, and I think mm-hmm. some clots you can open up, you know, within within a minute. <laughs> and some clots you work at for an hour or two to finally get it open. Right. So I think if we could understand clot composition, and, and that would certainly help us uh, understand which patients we're going to be able to have a significant impact on quickly. Um, but I think I do think that, um, you know, as our devices are getting better, um, we are we are going to be um, opening these vessels quicker, and I think patients will have better outcomes with. Um, related to that. And I think, you know, the only other way to, to improve outcomes is really going to be better patient selection. And I think that's mm-hmm. kind of the ongoing, um, I think that's kind of the ongoing, um, you know, challenge with some of the new trials and and uh, and things that are being looked at. And I think perfusion imaging is, is I think, um, a good way to do that. Um, I think it will allow us to select patients that, that have, you know, areas of significant infarction um, that we can, or I'm sorry, areas that are at risk without significant infarction that we can have a tremendous impact on. Well, great. Well, I congratulate you on on the work that you've been doing. Um, Do you have any further comments for me? You know, it's certainly work that we've continued to uh, progress with, and we we recently submitted a manuscript to you guys a couple weeks ago with our latest data, which has uh, uh, increased up to 140 patients. And uh, our outcomes have stayed very similar um, across the board as far as uh, outcomes early and late. And all of our uh, findings have all stayed the same out to 140 patients. 
and oh, we're working on another manuscript uh, with a multi-center um, where we collaborated with Don Fry and Jay Mako um, and uh, have about 260 patients. Um, wow. And, again, the outcomes that we've seen so far are staying staying the same as well. So oh, that'll be you know, very hopeful. information. Yeah, so we're, we're very hopeful that um, all of this, you know, th- that, that I think, you know, if people can, uh, you know, really will hopefully change their tune and really kind of be going away from saying, hey, there were eight hours to going, hey, I don't care what the time is. If their scan looks good, we're going to do it. And if it doesn't, then we're not mm-hmm. going to do it. Well, that makes sense. Well, Quill, th- thanks for spending time with me this morning. I really appreciate it. Oh, no, Rob, I, I appreciate the time and uh, and uh, appreciate all the effort you guys are doing to, to get the uh, these data out. For more information about this program and other BMJ Group podcasts, please visit bmj.com.